So before we begin, let's generate our motivation and really think of uh, this quite large universe filled with so many galaxies, so many solar systems, so many countless sentient beings. sentient beings want to be happy, don't want to suffer, and yet all but a very small, minuscule fraction have no access to the Dharma, and so don't know what the causes of suffering and the causes of happiness are. So they wander around aimlessly in, in samsara, trying to be happy, but due to self-centeredness, ignorance, anger, and attachment, creating so many causes for suffering all the time. Yet all those sentient beings equally have been kind to us. We can't point to any who have been more kind to us than others. If we look in the big picture of beginningless cyclic existence, they've all been equally kind. And so let's try and repay their kindness equally. without playing favorites, holding some close, pushing others away. But trying to serve each living being as best as we can, however much we can. And knowing that part of Benefiting sentient beings entails improving our own mind. So taking that time to practice, to develop our wisdom, compassion, and skillful means. So that our Dharma practice and our entire life becomes service to sentient beings and transforming the mind into a Buddhist awakened mind. So with this kind of motivation, then let's listen to the Gom Chen Lamrim this evening. So, last week um, we finished the section in the text 
about how to rely on a spiritual mentor. The idea being um, that in anything we do in our life, we need teachers, we need mentors. And so Dharma practice, because it is so subtle, then of course we need a teacher and a, men a mentor for that. If we try and make up our own path to awakening, we'll wind up right where we are right now, <laughs> or worse. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we talked about how to select a teacher, how to establish a good relationship, and so on. So now, uh, you know, with the, the idea being that we're going to receive teachings from the teacher that, that we've selected, the text now turns to um, meditation and how to construct a meditation session. Yeah, because we're still at the very beginning of the text. The whole rest of the text is going to go into all the different um, meditations that constitute the stages of the path. So now, uh, you know, the author is explaining how to structure a meditation session. The topic of the meditation will, will uh, change according to the topic that is being studied, but the whole structural framework of the, the session remains the same, no matter what the topic is. Okay? So, it talks about how to, um, you know, what to do in the actual meditation session, and what to do in the break times between meditation sessions. And in the actual meditation session, it first talks about the preliminary practices, then about how to do the actual meditation, and then the concluding practices, how to wrap up your meditation session. Okay? So with the preliminary practices, um, you know, there's this there's a practice of the six preliminaries. So we'll go through those. I'll, I'll just list them and then we'll, we'll go back through them. Okay. Um, so the first one is to clean the place and to then set up the uh, symbols of the Buddha's body, speech, and mind. Second is to arrange offerings that were, were procured properly and to arrange them in an attractive way. Third is the actual um, position, you know, of our body in meditation, and then the quote, quote, position of our mind. In other words, uh, taking refuge in the three jewels and generating bodhicitta, so that our mind knows what we're doing and why we're doing it. Okay, then the fourth is to visualize the merit field. In other words, to, to visualize the uh, assembly of holy beings. We have a uh, painting in the meditation hall that describes this visualization. So you can look at that. We'll point it out to you later. And then fifth is to do the... Um, the seven branch practice or seven limb practice for creating uh, merit and purifying and uh, multiplying. There's three purposes in that. And then the sixth is 
the mandala offering, here mandala referring to uh, our universe as we know it. Okay? So in these six practices, some are very practical things like sweeping the room, and some involve more uh, devotional practices and so on. So some people come into the Dharma and they're not very keen on devotional practices. And some people come into the Dharma and they like these practices very much. And some people come into the Dharma and they don't like them and then they do them and after a while they come to see the importance and they like them. Yeah. So there's all different sorts of people who have different responses. Um, so just, I would say, try and listen, um, you know, with an open mind and, and really try and understand the purpose of these practices because, you know, when we do these, these more uh, quote-quote devotional practices or, you know, that involve recitations, the whole purpose of them is to change our mind. It's not just to recite something blah, 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 like a tape recorder, but to really think about what we're saying and have those various thoughts become, you know, what is present in our mind and what, you know, our emotional state is as well. Okay? So let's start with the... With the First of the, the six preliminaries, this one's uh, I think everybody can accept. Well, the first part of the first part, at least everybody <laughs> can accept, is clean the room, okay? So, you know, um, our environment is a reflection of our mental state, and our environment also influences our mental state. So we always try to meditate in a clean place. So sweep the floor, vacuum the floor, dust, you know, meditate in a tidy place, not in a place that's filled with, you know, the kids' toys or your toys or, uh, you know, then you have the stack of old newspaper from the 70s and the stack of Sports Illustrated from the 80s and family pictures and all sorts of junk everywhere. Okay, um, if, if our house is like that, it says something about our mind, doesn't it? Yeah, don't you think? Yeah, what our house looks like says something about what our mind looks like. <laughs> so, um, if we, you know, clean the environment and make it tidy, it, it really helps our mind become cleaner and tidier. And uh, so do that, and then set up a, an altar or a shrine. So when we, the purpose of having the altar and the, and the shrine is that it reminds us of the Buddha's qualities, and in that way inspires us to want to generate those qualities in our own mind. Okay, so setting up an altar, making offerings, this isn't done because the Buddha needs it, okay? It's done because we need to remember the enlightened qualities so that our mind will become interested and inspired in generating them, okay? So 
when we set up the, the altar, we always have the Buddha in the center. Okay. Um, we may have pictures of our teachers, and if we do, they usually go above the Buddha. Here we, we put His Holiness to the side. I think we're going to be re redoing our altar because in a few days we're going to be getting a, uh, a stained glass window of Chenresi. That was an arm Chenresi. That will go there and then we'll put His Holiness on the top, a small photo of His Holiness on top. Okay, so the Buddha is in the center. That's the Buddha's body. We always talk about the body, speech, and mind of the holy beings, and similarly our body, speech, and mind. Okay, so the statue represents the Buddha's body. On the Buddha's um, uh, right, in other words, on the left as we look at the Buddha, then we put symbols of the Buddha's speech. And so what we have here, we have uh, one text that's wrapped in cloth behind. And in the red, uh, little red pouch, we have on a CD the uh, entire Tibetan canon and also the, the uh, Chinese canon. And I think we have the Pali canon as well. Okay, so they're all on CDs there. Okay. If you printed them all out, you would have piles and piles of books. When we go in the meditation hall, yeah, you'll see the Buddha statue in the middle. On the left side, as we face the Buddha, are, is the Kangyur, which uh, are the sutras, the actual discourses the Buddha spoke. And on the right side is what's called the Tengyur, the great Indian commentaries. And they're all wrapped in uh, this, you know, golden-colored cloth, uh, and they're printed in the the old Tibetan style of um, of books, you know, kind of long and thin, and the pages uh, are not bound together, so you're really careful not to drop it. <laughs> okay, um, we can, if you're interested, we can unwrap uh, one of the texts and show you what they look like later. Okay, so on that side you have the symbol of the Buddha's speech. On that side you have the symbol of the Buddha's mind. So here we have in front a stupa. That's actually a replica of one of the smaller stupas at Borobudur. Borobudur is a huge, um, I think it's the largest stupa. Uh, it's in Indonesia and uh, a stupa is like a monument that uh, represents the, the Buddha's awakened mind. Often they put uh, relics and different things inside of the stupas. So this small uh, black stone one is a replica of one of the small ones that they have at Borobudur. Okay. Um, yeah, we have the whole Borobudur statue. Where is it? Is it in... Hmm? Yeah, it's in the, in the Kuan Yin room, right? In the library. Okay. Oh, yeah, in the library. Okay. Okay, so you have the symbols of the Buddha's body, speech, mind. Yeah. So you set up the, the uh, altar like that. Also on this side, we have the um, J. Rinpoche. Sir, and his two disciples that was gifted to us by some 
a friend in Singapore. Uh, and Jay Rinpoche is the founder of the particular lineage that we tend to follow. Uh, okay, so that's the first of the six preliminaries. The six is to arrange um, offerings in an attractive way. So we have to procure the offerings, and it's very important that what we offer, we obtain in a proper way, so that we don't obtain offerings by overcharging customers and cheating people and lying to get more money or stealing things or, you know, um, through, you know, extortion or ransom or, you know, some kind of wrong livelihood like that. Or even for monastics, you know, um, to offer things that we get but not through hinting to other people that we want stuff or flattering people or putting people in a position where they can't say no or acting hypocritically or, you know, giving people a small gift so that they'll give us a big one. So also as monastics, although we don't hold jobs, the, what we offer should be something purely ob obtained with a good motivation without uh, harming others or deceiving others. And then arranging the, the offerings in, in an attractive way. So uh, the first the question comes, why do we make offerings? Okay. The purpose is to help us create merit. Merit is like good karma, and so we need to uh, enrich our mind with goodness. Yeah, we need to deliberately cultivate positive attitudes that make our mind happy and enrich it with, with a good attitude. So generosity is a trait that everybody admires, whether you're a religious person or, or a secular person or no matter what religion you follow. Generosity is something in human society that is very much encouraged. So making offerings on the altar is a practice of generosity. From the Buddhist side, the Buddha doesn't need things. Okay, when you're an enlightened being and you can perceive all phenomena in the universe and you're free from all mental afflictions and you have single point of concentration, you don't need some plums and oranges and you know, tangerines and a, and a nectarine, you know? It's like these kind of things are inconsequential for the enlightened beings, but for us, since we tend to you know, get very attracted to those things, and sometimes even a bit miserly about them, then it's very helpful for us to uh, cultivate an attitude of generosity by offering these things. Okay? We also offer the seven water bowls here. You can have one water bowl or five or, you know, we usually offer seven. Um, if you, I know somebody's going to say, why seven? And I'm going to use an answer that the Dalai Lama taught me. Because six is too few and eight is too many. <laughs> okay? So, um, but, uh, but water is something that is, uh, we, we can usually 
um, get it is plentiful, so we can offer it without attachment. Yeah. Um, although I must say, I remember once when I was living in India and the water tap went dry, and you know, offering the water, my water bowls, all of a sudden, like was, mm, okay, <laughs> yeah, where's the water going to come from? And, okay, so we um, offer the water bowls. There's a special way to put it up. Um, we have a video on YouTube about how to do the offerings. Or if you're interested, uh, somebody can show you, you know, take a group of you over the, over the weekend and show you how to do it. And then we offer food and lights and flowers, no, um, but downstairs, we, you know, around the, the Kuan Yin statue there. So anything um, that, that you consider beautiful, the reason he's laughing. Yeah, when I said flowers around the Kuan Yin is because when I walked in today, the flowers were sitting in the um, in the entry room out of the vase just lying on the bookshelf. So flowers, anything we consider beautiful, and we especially, you know, keep the altar quite clean. And, uh, and it's very nice, you know, when you have the, you know, a shrine or, uh, in your house, it's really, uh, it's always a reminder. You know, you may be really flustered and the days like you're so aggravated because things are not going the way you want them to go during the day and somebody criticized you and people aren't doing what you want and you're like, and then you walk past your altar and there's the Buddha sitting there, you know, peaceful, firm, steady, and we look and we go, oh yeah, that's the way I want to be, yeah, so let's just drop all this chatter in my mind, all this annoyance and fear and anxiety, let's just drop it and, you know, let my mind rest and, you know, so I can become like the Buddha. So it's a very good reminder, I think, for us. I know I find it quite helpful during the day, you know, to walk by and see the images. And, you know, it reminds you of what you want to become. Because the, the, um, the images are all like manifestations of the Buddha's mind communicating in some kind of physical form the qualities of a fully awakened being. Yeah. So we're not worshiping the statues, we're certainly not idol worshippers, yeah. but we realize that the statues are, you know, showing inner qualities in a symbolic way. You know, just as how, how we sit shows what's going on in our mind. Yeah, how the Buddha sits shows what's going on in his mind. Yeah, we sit like this. What's that telling people about? What do we like? Closed, suspicious, not very friendly. Do you want to talk to somebody who's like, 
No. Okay. You look at a statue of, of Chenrezig, thousand-armed Chenrezig, like this. Yeah. Thousand arms, like this. It's saying something. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's saying something. So, you know, it helps communicate to us. Okay, so, um, yeah, the second one was arrange the offerings in an attractive way so we don't just throw them on the altar. Okay? And uh, when, when you're planning what to offer, you know, don't pick over the fruit and keep all the good fruit for yourself and then give the ones that are a little bit old on the altar. It should be the reverse. We give the best to, to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Yes, you have a comment? <laughs> oh, your face has a comment. <laughs> okay, then the third is um, on a seat, uh, sit cross-legged with your body straight, and then take refuge and generate bodhicitta, uh, being careful to be sincere. So the position of your body, it's uh, good to sit with a cushion under your rear, okay? If your rear is elevated rather than flat on the cushion, it helps you to keep your spine straight. As for your legs, you know, if you can sit in full Vajra position, it's good. That's with your left foot on your right thigh and your right foot on your left thigh. If you can't do that, then put your right foot down, you know, in front. If you can't do that, slide your left foot down, so, but it's tucked in and your right foot is outside of that. If you can't do that, then sit cross-legged, just, you know, like you do usually. If you can't do that, then uh, sit on one of the little meditation benches with your, you know, that have your legs underneath. And if you can't do that, then sit in a chair. And the chair should be straight back, not one that, that, uh, that you lean back, okay? So, uh, you know, lots of people in the West seem to have all sorts of aches and pains. It's, it's quite curious to me, you know, when you go to Asia, not nearly so many people sit in chairs. They don't seem to have as many aches and pains as Westerners do. I don't know if that's because they grew up sitting on the ground or, or what, but, you know, you, these kind of big teachings, you don't see very many people in chairs. In any case, you know, if you're sitting in a chair, then your feet should be flat on the ground. Yeah, so don't cross your legs. You have them flat on the ground. Okay, and then your back should be straight. Yeah, so if, if you're in a chair, don't, don't kind of lean back, especially those big, you know, soft, reclining chairs. <laughs> yeah. um, 
but sit up straight. And then your hands, the right and the left, the thumbs are touching to form a triangle. And that is in your lap against your body. Okay, so it's not in front of your body so that your, your arms are like this. And it's not with your arms like chicken wings sticking out. Yeah, but just with your hands against your body but comfortably in your lap. Okay. Then your head level. Yeah, don't uh, have your head, your chin lifted. It, it will uh, cause distraction. Uh, don't let it sag because it usually keeps going down. Okay, but have it level. You can tuck your chin in just a tinge. Yeah, if you want to. Then the eyes. Um, it's good to have them. They, they say look at the tip of your nose. However, if that's a little bit uncomfortable, just put them down in the space in front of you on the ground. The idea of keeping them a little bit open is to let some light in. And that light will prevent you from getting drowsy. Okay? If your eyes close naturally and you're not getting drowsy, that's okay. But try and, you know, at least at the beginning, try keeping them a little bit open. But just here, you're not really looking at anything. Okay? Because your meditation is done with your mental consciousness, not with your eyes. Okay? So, uh, and then keep your mouth shut unless you have bad allergies and can't breathe. And then breathe any way you possibly can. Okay? Um, yeah. They, they usually say to keep your tongue against your upper palate. In my mouth, I'm not quite sure where else my tongue would fit. Um, but, you know... <laughs> Maybe people have different shaped mouths, so they, you know, they say keep the tip of your tongue on the upper palate. Uh, and that prevents uh, saliva from drooling in case you're so fortunate as to go into single-pointed concentration for a few hours. Um, <laughs> okay? Yeah. And then you start out the, the session um, you can do a little bit of breathing meditation just to calm the mind, you know, watching the in-breath and the out-breath. Yeah. In the Tibetan tradition, they tend not to do a whole meditation session on the breath. Yeah. If that, we'll talk about that tomorrow, you know. If you want to use the breath as your object for concentration, that's fine. Usually, they use the breath to uh, just kind of quiet the mind down at the beginning. Yeah. But we'll talk about doing a whole session with it tomorrow, because that, that can work too. Some people it works quite well. Okay, But otherwise just do a little bit of breathing to kind of calm the mind. And then um, to prepare the mind, we uh, take refuge and we generate bodhicitta. And so when we take refuge, there's a very uh, complex refuge visualization with one large throne and the Buddha on the center in that and the different lineages, lamas sitting around that and around them, the 
other deities and Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and Prajaka Buddhas and Arhats and Dhaka Dakinis and Dharma protectors and the whole big, you know, everybody's there. Um, I, I, I'm not going into all the details of it now. I think those of you who are interested can read it, you know, in a long rim book. If that kind of vast visualization is too much for you, then just visualize the Buddha and see the Buddha as encompassing all of the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Okay? So if we do it, you know, with just the Buddha in front, then the, there's a, uh, a golden throne, and on top of that a lotus, a flat moon disk, a sun disk. The lotus represents um, renunciation, the moon, bodhicitta, the sun, wisdom. And then the Buddha sits on top of that, like the Buddha sitting here. That's called the earth-touching position. Um, you know, in uh, his right hand is, is touching the earth, because when the, the Buddha uh, became awakened, then um, some of the spirits were saying, well, you know, how do I... How do we know you're really awakened? And the earth goddess came out of... The Buddha touched the earth, and the earth goddess came out and said, I can attest to that. Okay, so that's one of the, the legends. Uh, so he's sitting touching the earth, and then his other hand holding the, uh, the alms bowl filled with nectar. Okay, so you can imagine the Buddha in the space in front, then we, as the embodiment of the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, then we take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha so that we uh, know what, you know, what our spiritual practice is. Yeah, like, who, who are our guides when we're practicing? What practice are we doing? Because yeah. you meet people, and it's kind of, you know, they do Sufi dancing on Monday night and crystals on Tuesday night and Kabbalah on Wednesday night and Buddhism on Thursday night and tarot cards on Friday night and Saturday night, something somebody invented last week in the news, uh, you know, New Age newspaper and then Sunday night, you know, I don't know what, maybe... Hmm? Yoga. Yeah, yoga of some sort. Yeah. Oh, but but then you have to do Christian centering prayer also the following Monday, and you know, so they don't know who, who what practice they're following, who their guides are. You know, their practice is kind of. My teacher called that soup. Yeah. You know, when you make soup, you put in carrots and celery and beans and this and that. You put a little bit of everything when you make soup. So he said that kind of practice is like making soup. You have a little bit of everything. Yeah. Uh, but you don't really understand much and you don't go very deep in any of it. So we start out, you know, taking refuge, saying, you know, I'm following a Buddhist path and the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha are my guides. You know, that's the direction I'm going in. And so that really helps our mind at the beginning of the practice to, you know, be clear about that. Okay? 
And then generating bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is the altruistic intention, aspiring to become a full Buddha, a fully awakened Buddha for the benefit of all beings. And so we uh, generate that intention, yeah, so that we know why we're doing the practice. Okay? So refuge is what practice we're doing and who our guides are, and bodhicitta is why we're doing that. And when we do a spiritual practice, we should know why we're doing it, don't you think? Yeah? And we should be able to look at our motivation. And, you know, we don't always start out with the bodhicitta practice. Yeah? Sometimes when you're new, you know, what's your motivation for, for coming to Dharma class or doing meditation? Yeah? What's your motivation? Yeah, have more peace of mind. Yeah. That's not a bad motivation. That's good. But it isn't as far-reaching as the altruistic intention to become a Buddha for the benefit of all beings. So we may start with, you know, I just want more peace of mind, or I want to do something about my temper. Yeah. Or, you know, whatever reason you come. Yeah, so you start with that. But then we deliberately cultivate a much broader um, motivation. Yeah? And that's why we, uh, you know, recite the bodhicitta. So in, um, you know, the way we started this session today, we started with some verses um, praising the Buddha to help us remember the Buddha's quality that helps us uh, take refuge and then we, uh, we offered the mandala. That's because it's a teaching situation. I'll, I'll get into that later. Um, but then the last one, the, the prayer we did, the recitation we did, was one of refuge and bodhicitta. And so, you know, we really think, you know, I take refuge until I'm awakened in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. That's refuge. And from the merit I create by um, practicing generosity and the other far-reaching practices, may I become a Buddha for the benefit of sentient beings. Yeah. So that's our motivation. And so, although we may not feel, at, you know, on fire with the motivation of bodhicitta, you know, it's like, oh, I got to work for the benefit of sentient beings. Um, you know, that's, that's not such a great attitude. Yeah, so if we notice when we're saying, that, when we're chanting the verse that our heart's not in it, then it's kind of, it, 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 it's indicative that we need to maybe stop and think of the kindness of sentient beings and develop a better attitude, you know. And then we, uh, we generate what's called fabricated bodhicitta. Okay, so we, it's our uh, effortful bodhicitta. Yeah. And so it's a process of really reminding ourselves of the long-term intention that we really respect and honor and that we uh, hope one day will arise spontaneously in our mind. It doesn't exist spontaneously now, so we, we do the chanting, and we remember it, and we generate it. Okay? Okay. 
so that's the third of the six preliminaries. Oh no, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's the yeah, no, that's the third. Then the fourth was visual, visualizing the merit field. Because usually after you take refuge in bodhicitta, you dissolve the uh, refuge visualization into yourself, and then you you visualize the merit field. Yeah. So that is the the uh, painting that we have in the hall that we'll show you tomorrow. Essentially, what it is is the center figure is uh, Jason Kappa, the founder of her lineage. And uh, then there's lines of all the lineage masters from the Buddha down to him, from him down to our own teachers, and then circles of all the holy beings. So it's similar to the refuge visualization, but a different shape. Okay? So, and it's called the merit field because by visualizing uh, these holy beings, and then doing the seven limb prayer, we create a lot of merit, okay? Because they say that, uh, you know, the kind of karma we create depends a lot on our intention, but it also depends on who we're creating that karma in relationship to, yeah? So holy beings are especially strong um, objects of karma, because of their spiritual qualities. And so if we make offerings to them or bow to them, you know, it creates a special kind of energy that's different than if you make offering to, you know, Joe Blow on the street or something like that, or give somebody a birthday present, okay? And uh, so other, other strong objects of, of offering are like the poor and the sick, so people who are really in need. That's called the field of compassion. And so because of their need, then, you know, any action we do, whether it's constructive or destructive, has a heavier karmic weight. So there's different objects with which we create karma. So this is called the merit field because of their qualities. The karma we create with them is especially heavy. That makes some sense to you? Yeah. I remember one time asking His Holiness about this whole idea of blessings, you know, and um, the Buddha giving, you know, giving a blessing. And, and his, his Holiness said, you know, it has to do something with the qualities of, of the person, you know, who is in inspiring your mind or helping you to transform your mind. And he gave the example of, you know, if, if you were imagining sitting in front of FDR. Yeah? Or, you know, George Bush or Obama or, you know, anybody. He chose FDR, I don't know why. But, um, do you think that that person had has the ability to inspire your mind or bless your mind in some way? You know, not for me. Yeah. You know, or the French premier who is it? 
Holland. You know, you're French. You should know. French president. Holland. Yes, Holland. Holland. Yeah. And Cameron. Yeah. And. Yeah, Merkel. And who's in Thailand? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, all these leaders, do you think they have any, you know, ability to kind of bless your mind? Or what do they do to your mind? I'm sorry, I forgot Canada. <laughs> I'm in the doghouse now. <laughs> Who's the leader of Canada? Stephen Harper. He needs to go. <laughs> He'll come in the doghouse with me. <laughs> um, Harper. He's been there for 12 years. He's been there 12 years. You could, you could be there for as long as you can get voted in there. There's no eight year limit. Really? It's very scary. Yeah. Okay. Australia's Tony, Tony Abbott. I remember I went there. They didn't like him very much either. Um, anyway, uh, back to the topic. You know, when, you, when you visualize political leaders, it's different than visualizing holy beings, isn't it? It has a different effect on your mind. Just even, you know, imagining the Buddha and thinking you're sitting in front of the Buddha, it, it affects you. Yeah? Whereas, you know, you imagine the the leader of your country and sitting in front of them, you know, that affects you in a totally different way. Uh, so you can get this I a little bit of an idea about, you know, why it's called the merit field, why, you know, it's a, a special object with which we, we can create uh, virtuous karma. Okay, so that's the fourth branch. The fifth branch is uh, doing the seventh in practice. So, the seven limb practice has seven branches, okay? Prostration, offering, confession, rejoicing, yeah, requesting, supplicating, and dedication, okay? Um, and it's quite interesting the way they teach it in the Lam Rim is by using the verses in the King of Prayers. Yeah, There's a short version of the seven limb prayer that we often recite. Uh, you'll probably be doing it on the with the meditation on the Buddha that you'll be doing this weekend. Uh, that's just seven lines. In this text, it's uh, about a page and a half, no, two pages. Um, so it's a little bit longer, but it's, uh, it's nice, so I'll, I'll go through it in relationship here. Okay, so it starts out with, um, with prostrations, okay, and so the first verse is, um, prost it, well, I bow down to the youthful Arya Manjushri is just the homage for it, but the first um, verse says, you, lion, uh, you lions amongst humans, gone to freedom in the present, past, and future, in the worlds of ten directions, to all of you with body, speech, and sincere mind, I bow down. Okay? So here, we're, we're bowing 
with body, speech, and mind. It's, it's prostrations with all three doors of body, speech, and mind. And it's prostrations to all the Buddhas, okay, in the present, past, and future, so in all three times, and also in the ten directions. Ten directions are the four, uh, you know, regular directions, the four cardinal directions, up and down. Don't ask me why. <laughs> I have in the West, we don't talk about ten directions, do we? Yeah, there's four and then the intermediate ones. Yeah. Not bad to add up and down. It gives different dimensions. Okay. Okay, so that's, you know, prostrations with all body, speech, and mind to all the Buddhas in all directions at all times. Okay. Then the next verse is um, physical prostrations, okay? So it says, with the energy of aspiration for the Bodhisattva way, with a sense of deep respect, and with as many bodies as atoms of the world, to all you Buddhas visualize before me, I bow down. So actually, you're creating, when you do this, you're creating this incredible scene in your imagination that you are then participating in, okay? So you are visualizing Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and holy beings and all the lineage teachers, you know, in the space filled with all these holy beings, okay? And surrounded by all sentient beings in human form or surrounded by all your previous lives also in human form, with as many bodies as atoms of the world. That's how many bodies you imagine that you have, how many sentient beings you imagine are around you. Okay? And then with the attitude, it says with a sense of deep respect, with the energy of aspiration for the Bodhisattva way, then to all you Buddhas, I bow down. So really seeing their qualities, paying homage. Why do we show respect by bowing down? Because it helps us to see their good qualities. When we see others' good qualities, it helps us generate those good qualities in our own mind stream. Again, from the side of the Buddhas, they don't need prostrations. You know, when, when you're a fully awakened Buddha, you don't need somebody bowing to you and praising to you and giving you some prunes and, you know, tangerines. Yeah, your mind is abiding in bliss for all eternity. Yeah, but from our side, this is a way that we learn to identify good qualities, show respect to those who are worthy of respect, so that we get inspired to... to develop those, old, those same qualities in ourselves. And when you do this kind of visualization, you know, with all these holy beings and all the sentient beings and, and you're bowing together, I mean, this is it's fantastic. Yeah. And we've all watched enough, um, you know, movies and, and you, do you remember Fantasia when we were kids? Yeah? Did, did younger people, did you see Fantasia? It's not just my generation. 
You know, and like things manifesting and flying here and there. Remember how cool that was? Well, it's the same kind of thing here, except you're with all these holy beings. Yeah? And you just make this huge scene. And there you are with all the Buddhas, and they're looking at you, and they're delighted, you know, seeing you because you're doing something virtuous, and you're looking at them feeling inspired and feeling full of admiration and respect, and you're bowing to them, and then we'll get into your offering to them, you're doing all these things. And it's, you know, you create this whole scene and you participate in it. Now somebody's going to say, but that's not really happening. Yeah. Well, isn't this make-believe? Actually, when we're mad at somebody, that is make-believe. Yeah. When we're anxious about something, that is make-believe. When we're craving something and saying, I've got to have this, that is make-believe. Yeah? So, just choose your make-believe, okay? <laughs> and anyway, why wouldn't the Buddhas be in front of you? Yeah? They don't need physical bodies to be there. Yeah, you think the Buddha's off somewhere far away on the other side of some, you know, I don't know, there's some black hole or maybe he's in a black hole or beyond the black hole or, you know, you think the Buddha's far away? Yeah, the Buddha doesn't exist in, you know, physical form like we do somewhere far away. Yeah, so you think of the Buddha, the Buddha's there. So it's really kind of cool. Actually, what, and you know, if you want to make the, the visualization really cool, and this comes from a later part of this prayer. This prayer is quite long. We won't do all of it. But, um, but there's, let me find the verse in, in the later part of the prayer. On one atom, on one atom, I shall see Buddha fields numberless as atoms inconceivable Buddhas amongst bodhisattvas in every field practicing the activities of awakening. Now, is that cool? Yeah? On one atom, you know, you're sitting here. Every atom of your body, every atom of dust, every atom of the room in front of you, you know, our Buddha fields numberless as atoms, inconceivable Buddhas amongst Buddha bodhisattvas in every field, practicing the activities of awakening. When you visualize that, in your mind there is no room for anger, for depression, for self-centeredness. Yeah? Do you think you could have, have visualize huge Buddha fields and get depressed at the same time? Or be angry at the same time? Do you think you can? Yeah? Visualize the Buddha with a body full of light, radiating light, and you're sitting there going, oh. 
but you can't visualize that, you know, feel self-pity. It doesn't work. Okay? So, yeah, these visualizations have a powerful effect on our mind. Okay? If you haven't done them, you probably don't believe me. But, you know, if you practice them for some time, it's, it's, they're quite powerful. And then when you get angry, then you say, oh, this is make-believe. Yeah, my anger is a make-believe. I'm making up a story. I'm making myself angry. angry. This is my hallucination. But you see, we, we ordinary beings, we're so, we're so dumb that we think these visualizations are make-believe and our anger is reality. Don't we? You know, when I'm angry, I'm justified in being angry. My view is correct. Where's that get us? Really, what does it get us? Yeah, we're angry, we rage for a while. Then, yeah, then, then what, good is, what good does it do? We're exhausted afterwards, aren't we? Yeah. Anyway, okay. So then the next verse, so that one was the physical prostration. Next verse, here we are. On every atom are Buddhas, numberless as atoms. <laughs> this is, I read you a verse later. This is the verse earlier. Each admits a host of bodhisattvas, and I am confident the sphere of all phenomena is entirely filled with Buddhas in this way. Yeah? Do you think that maybe on every atom of hydrogen... There can be a Buddha. Yeah. Every atom of nitrogen, there can be a Buddha. So that's setting the scene. Okay. Then the next one. Okay. Then the next verse says, With infinite oceans of praise for you, and oceans of sounds from the aspects of my voice, I sing the breathtaking excellence of Buddhas and celebrate all of you gone to bliss. So that's bowing with our speech. Yeah? The oceans of sounds from the aspects of my voice. I sing the breathtaking excellence of the Buddhas. You know? Now that too is, uh, is going to change our mind, isn't it? Usually what do we do with our speech? We list all the defects of other people or ourselves. Yeah. And this and this and this and that, you know? So here we're listing all the good qualities of the holy beings. It's going to have a very different effect than when we sit there and just complain about other people. Isn't it? Yeah. We can go on and on. Think of your most unfavorite person in the world. Yeah? You can go on and on about their negative qualities, can't you? Can't you? Yeah? 
run out of bad things to say. Yeah? <laughs> what, wow, when we let our speech go in that direction, what does it do to us? Yeah? We're like, bleh. Yeah? So here's the opposite. We're, t- we're singing oceans of praise for the Buddhas. You know, and singing of their their breathtaking excellence. So that again, totally different effect on our mind. Okay. So actually, the previous verse, the one on every atoms or on Buddhas or numberlessness atoms, that's bowing with our mind because we're imagined. That's the mental prostration, and then this one with infinite oceans of praise for you. That's the verbal prostration. Okay. Then, the next verse here is going to be the second of... So all those verses were the first one of prostrations. Now the second second branch is offering. So we start out with um, what they call surpassable offerings. In other words, worldly offerings. Things that we can offer in the world. So if we have beautiful things, we put them on the altar. If we don't, then we just imagine them. And again, same thing. You use your imagination. Beautiful things filling the entire sky. Yeah. And I'm sure you can do that because that's what you do whenever you look at the advertisements in the magazines. Isn't it? We look at the advertisements. You know, oh, there's that car. Oh, I can visualize myself driving that car. Oh, beautiful red sports car this feature and that feature and the other feature. But I'm not limited to a beautiful red sports car. I also want a Lexus. And you visualize your Lexus and with all of its, its, its features. But you're, you know, that too isn't sufficient because you need an SUV for the kids. And then you visualize the SUV, you know, with all of its wonderful features. And then you also want a truck you know, so that you can transport plants from place to place, and you visualize your truck. You know, I've I've ridden in some really cool trucks. You know, you ride in them. They're like a car on the inside, but it's a truck in the back thing. But it has a thing that covers it. You know, but it rides smooth, not like Haroldina. <laughs> you know, and it has seatbelts that work. And you, <laughs> car doesn't smell like mouse pee. <laughs> I'm telling you about our vehicles. <laughs> yeah, the aircon works. <laughs> okay, so we can sit and visualize all the cars we want, can't we? Very easily, you know? Maybe throw in a few motorcycles. You know, how about a boat? Didn't you always want a yacht, too? Yeah, throw in a yacht. Yeah, how about your own private plane? Yeah, we can sit there, and, you know, whenever we read advertisements, that's what we're doing. We're visualizing ourselves as the owners of all these things, and then we go out and get them. Yeah, so, you know... What is, what is more make-believe? 
in, you know, increasing our greed for the world's resources by imagining things that we don't really need, or imagining, you know, Buddhas and making outstanding offerings to them. Maybe even taking the whole car lot you formulated in your mind and offering that to the Buddha. You know, here's the SUV, here's the hot red sports car. No, the red hot sports car. <laughs> here's, the, here's the Lexus, here's the, you know. Yeah. And then Buddha looks at them and goes, eh. <laughs> Okay, but here, what are, what are we offering? Beautiful flowers and regal garlands. Sweet music, scented oils, and parasols. Sparkling lights and sublime incense. I offer to you victorious ones. Fine dress and fragrant perfumes. Sandalwood powder heaped high as Mount Meru. All wondrous offerings in spectacular array. I offer to you victorious ones. In the, the first, in the Blue Prayer Book, we have the uh, expanded offering. Yeah? Extensive. Yeah? The extensive offering. So that's a really good practice to do. You know, maybe during one of the meditations over the retreat, do lead that. Okay? Because the thing is, when you visualize all these Buddhas and all these beautiful things and you offer them, you're creating a scene of such beauty that you feel uplifted, yeah? And you feel like you're sitting, you know? Because you're not just, you know, well, yeah, this is, this is a pretty nice thermos. I mean, don't you think this is a nice thermos? I like this thermos. It's a pretty color, kind of shines a little bit. But in our, in our imagination, when we do, when we offer thermoses, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't list them here, but, you know, I'm practical. Thermoses are very useful. Um, but when you visualize a thermos to offer to the Buddha, you make it glowing, and it's transparent, and it has this incredible nectar in it that just fills you with bliss, you know, and it's gorgeous, and you, you know, and you offer that to the Buddha. And why not? It creates a real sense of beauty in your mind. And what's the difference between that and flipping through the pages of a catalog, looking at very ordinary thermoses, thinking, mm, yeah, I want one like that. This is the small one. I have a bigger one like this in my room. Same color, really good, holds hot water overnight. Yeah, you should get one. <laughs> but then they also have these things that the people in Indonesia gave me, which I always wonder why you don't put out, why you put this one out instead of the ones in Indonesia. Those were really cool, yeah? They're, these, they're little, and they're actually drinking cups. This one's a thermos. Those are drinking cups. But you unscrew them, and you can drink from them, and then screw them right back up. They're really cool. Yeah? So, you know, you can visualize all that kind of stuff and talk about them all day and all night and go out and shop for them and buy them and, yeah. 
Or you can visualize these huge, beautiful things that are incredibly spectacular and offer all of those to the Buddha. That's basically the same thing, isn't it? Yeah? Except you're offering ordinary things to yourself versus offering spectacular things to the holy beings. Okay? Then the next verse is um, you're offering the unsurpassable offerings, okay? So these are offerings that the uh, aryas that, you know, the holy beings make. So these offerings really are made of light and are manifest, excuse me, manifestations of wisdom. So that verse reads, with transcendent offerings, peerless and vast, with profound admiration for all the Buddhas, with strength of conviction in the Bodhisattva way, I offer and bow down to all victorious so, again, you're filling the sky with huge, beautiful things that are the nature of wisdom, and you offer those also. Okay? So, that's all we have time for today. We'll continue next week. But I hope I conveyed some sense of enthusiasm for this practice Although some of you are probably going, she's kind of nuts. <laughs> but uh, try it and see how it affects your mind. Yeah? Let's try it and see. Yeah, because I didn't make up this practice. This, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is the, pra- the kind of practice. Uh, described what I was reading for you is from one of the sutras, the um, the, the Gandhavuha Sutra, yeah. And so this is written in the in the sutras. The Buddhas are speaking these these practices. Okay. Any questions or comments? Yeah. The extended offering prayer is that the King of Prayers? No, it's in the Blue Prayer Book. And it says extensive offerings in the table of contents. Yeah. So when making offerings, could it, is it, I'm sometimes confused about what can be offered and what can't. So like, like so struggles, personal struggles, like offering a wish for my livelihood, is that okay? Or is something like um, offering a wish uh, for his holiness to consecrate Sarasti Abbey, are those more like dedications I would do, or are those all? Yeah, no, those are more dedications or requests. Yeah. Those are, yeah, those four fall into the other branches. But they're still quite virtuous to do. Mm-hmm. I am wondering what do you do with the, um, like you have uh, food offerings on the altar? Mm-hmm. What do you do with those as they yeah. Okay. So we usually put them up one day and then take them down the next, and then you can eat them or give them to other people. Yeah. I just wanted to share something that struck me, and then when I was taking the teachings this summer, when Geshe Tenzin-Dorji was teaching on emptiness, mm-hmm. but his whole beginning was about the seven-month prayer, mm-hmm. and he finished the teaching.
teaching and he says, if you are not doing your seven limb practice, you will never realize emptiness. And that was his, that was really the nut of his whole teaching. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's very important to purify and accumulate merit. Incredibly important. Yeah? You, you said that um, when we offer to the Buddha, we create much more merit than when we create, than we offer to a friend for his birthday or something. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you offer something to a friend, but you actually offer to the Buddha nature of this friend, or if you offer something that is related to Dharma, like Dharma book, um, could it be also a way to yeah. create merit? Oh yeah, there's many ways to create merit. But here I was talking about creating merit in terms of the object to whom we're offering. You know, and then therefore the holy beings are objects, strong objects of the creation of merit because of their their good qualities. Yeah, but you know, if you give your friend a bo uh, a birthday present, give it with bodhicitta, and imagine giving giving presents to all sentient beings. Yeah, so there's many ways to create merit, but I was talking here about a specific specific way. Mm -hmm. Is effortful bodhicitta the same as aspiring or aspirational bodhicitta? Mm, no. I, um, aspiring bodhicitta is where you're aspiring to become a Buddha. Engaging bodhicitta is when you're actually taking the bodhisattva ethical restraints and you're engaging in the practice. The the uh, effortful or fabricated bodhicitta is on the, it's more on the side of aspiring bodhicitta, but you're generating it with effort. It's not coming spontaneously in your mind yet. Yeah? It, it could be also engaging bodhicitta, you know, that is effortful because you're generating the motivation to engage in the, in the different um, practice of the perfections. Yeah? Then when, um, when people pass away, sometimes the family will make vast offerings at all the major monasteries, mm -hmm. vast, vast amounts of food and substances. Could you explain how that benefits the mind of the person who's, who's dead? Ah, okay. So when they make a lot of offerings to monasteries, um, how does that benefit the, the mind of the person who died? The idea is that when you create merit by doing all these offerings, then you dedicate that merit for all sentient beings, but particularly for the deceased person. So it's like sending a, a whole stream of good energy towards them, which sets the stage for whatever good karma they've created to ripen. Okay? You can't give them the merit you create, but it creates a whole, you know, wonderful atmosphere of virtue, and then their own merit can, can do. But also those practices Yeah, because it, it gets them to be generous and to create some good, you know, some merit themselves, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I really like the concept of using visualization. 
Yeah. As positive of an attitude as you can have during the day, go for it. Yeah, outside the meditation too. You know, even you're passing the ketchup to somebody. You know, think I'm making offerings to the Buddha. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. With the stupa being a symbol of the Buddha's mind, uh-huh. are there other things that could be put on outside the altar that would be a symbol of the Buddha's mind? Um, you can use a stupa or a bell. Or a picture of a stupa. Yeah? Someone is asking how to meditate on confession and whether you can confess to yourself but not the Buddha. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, confession comes next week. Tune in next week. Same time, same station. (laughs) Okay. Or go back to when I taught the easy path. If you can't wait until next week and watch it there, we'll talk about it then. Okay, let's have a little bit of, uh, like a couple of minute digestion meditation to reflect on what we heard so we can remember it and take it home with us. do the concluding mandala and the dedication. May the spiritual teachers who lead me on the sacred path and all spiritual friends who practice it have long life. May I classify completely all our inner hindrances May you stay until samsara ends. May the 
deeds of explaining and practicing the Dharma, done by groups supporting the teachings and their upholders, who spread the view of dependent arising and nonviolent actions in the 